you know, just by listening to a description of a different way of looking than, than the way that I thought would be helpful. I wonder if I can teach that to other people. The answer is yes. So as I'm describing it to you, you're probably imagining and envisioning what that experience is like to have a narrowed focus of attention. And when we taught participants, we've worked with thousands of people. When we teach them to do that, to narrow their attentional scope, like that spotlight down to more like a point rather than lighting up the whole room, to choose something to focus on until they get there and then to reset their target, what we found is that it led people to move 23% faster. We kept the distance the same. We did it. We tested this in, in a really controlled environment. The distance was always the same for everybody. The, the difficulty of the exercise remained the same. And yet when they narrowed their focus, rather than leaving it to be broad and expansive, they moved 23% faster and said that it hurt 17% less. So we made the exercise easier, even though they were performing at like a higher level of difficulty. Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. We talk health and well-being every Mondays and Thursdays. If you are new, welcome along. If you're returning, thank you so much for coming back. And indeed, thank you for all of your support over the last year. And if you've been listening to me since day one, well, thank you very much indeed. We've seen a huge increase in the number of streams, downloads, subscribers across the board. Over the last 12 months, I've uploaded 2,000 minutes of content over the last year, according to Spotify. And uh, we've, as I said, seen a huge increase in interest and subscribers, which is amazing. So thank you for your continued support. Indeed, if you want to show me your support even more so, please like, subscribe, share and uh, let your friends and family, work colleagues, etc. know all about this podcast because there are so many great interviews and topics and discussions uh, throughout the course of the 360 plus episodes in the Happy Habit Archive and lots of great motivational talks uh, that can help people bring about that transformation that uh, they will certainly be looking for when the new year begins. So a deep dive into that archive when you get the chance over the holidays. And talking of motivational episodes, we have another one for you today. I'm talking with Emily Balcheris. She is a social psychologist and professor of psychology at NYU and author of the book Clearer, Closer and Better. She is fascinated by how we look at things and has performed groundbreaking research showing how we can change our perspective to attain our goals. In this episode, we hear how what we see creates our perception of the world around us. We hear about how much of what we see is in direct focus, how much is in our peripheral vision, and the role the brain plays in filling in the gaps, not just in our vision, but also in our subjective experience. We learn how this knowledge about our subjective focus can be used in the context of health and fitness to enhance our performance simply by changing how we look at a task. Expect to learn about how we can sustain motivation and the importance of factoring in the inevitability of obstacles, pitfalls and failures in the path to a goal. Plus, we learn how best to take action that gives us the best opportunity to sustain our New Year's resolutions. Well, thank you, Dr. Balchettis, for joining me on the podcast today. You have said that vision is the most important sense that we have. 
as it informs our perception of the world around us. How does it manage to do this? Well, um, for part of the reason that you've already said that, like, you know, when when we think about how do we understand the world, how do we navigate the world, most people think through their eyes. If they are a sighted person and have the power of sight, then it's through their eyes. There's all kinds of phrases that support that, like seeing is believing. You know, we just believe that what we look at is the world as it really is. But there's so much research and examples where that's just not the case. That's why visual illusions are so much fun to play with and why we're all so surprised when things like that black gold dress go viral, right? Of like, how could somebody have seen this dress this way? It's totally obviously the opposite way. And and those examples then of visual illusions are so exciting and so so much cause so much drama because we all feel like well, what I see is the way that the world really is. And so what we're seeing that is really subjective. So that is the reason why I can look at something that my next door neighbor is looking at and we can see two completely different things, even though we're looking at the same thing. Well, I mean, yes and no. And as psychologists, that's often the answer. Yes and no. Our eyes and our visual system have adapted so that it does do a pretty good job most of the time. You know, it's it's like we do need to navigate the world. We do need to, to know where the edge of the sidewalk is and where the street starts. We do need to know is that food in front of us or is it poop so that we eat the right thing and avoid the things that we need to, that we you know can recognize our child in the crowd. Like So we have evolved a really efficient and effective system that generally does a really good job of getting it right. But one of the things that our visual system is tasked with is making those decisions really, really quickly. And to do that, it has to sort of, um, you know, like like downsize the information that it's taking in. The world presents far more information than we can actually effortfully and consciously process at any one given point in time. And so our brain makes strategic decisions about what we are going to engage with fully and what we're going to allow to sort of fall along the wayside. Now, like... In a sense, what I'm talking about is that there are some things that we are blind to. Even if we can see, there are things that we're blind to. And I think the best example is just thinking about your drive home from work or, you know, a, a route that you take running uh, all the time, something that's habitual. We're not always aware of every single thing that we passed. And yet we can go from our office to our home and make the right decisions and stop at the stop signs and, and go when the lights is green. But we don't have to like really think about that. We don't have to really see that stop sign for us to make the right choice upon encountering it. And so in that sense, and when you get home and you think about like, well, what did I see along my way? You might not be able to get it right. Like how many people did I see? Like how many men did I see? How many women did I see? How many stop signs were there? You're probably not really thinking about it. You're not really seeing it because it doesn't matter (laughs) because your body knows how to like drive. You know which way to turn left. You know which way to turn right. And you don't have to really be seeing it. You don't have to really be thinking about it to make those right decisions. So that's an example um, where, you know, we might not be really fully aware of what we're looking at. Um, and that's because we have to make those kinds of choices. We have to be able to make those choices of like, this is not important for us to really look at so that we can pay attention to the things that really matter. Like anything that might pop out into the middle of the street unexpectedly or a ball rolls into the street or a child is on the side and they, and they stumble into the road. Those are the things that we do need to see. And so we, our brain allows us to make those choices of, well, don't really pay, pay attention to the 
to the trees and to the stop signs and to the electrical lines that are above because those will never be problematic for us. So we don't need to see those. You have used the example of holding your thumb at arm's length out in front of you and the area covering your thumb is the mm-hmm. the area that you are laser focused on and everything then around that is ambiguous or blurry and is, is essentially constructed then by the brain. Yeah, that's the difference between foveal view and, and peripheral view. So we've all you know heard about like peripheral vision and the stuff that's happening on the sides. And that it can be trickier to see. We're really good at picking up on motion. You know, like something might catch our eye because it moves in the side and then we look um, and we look at it. But we don't really see the details of what's happening over here, right? That movement catches our attention, but we don't really, we're actually really bad at picking up on color of what's over here. Uh, we're not, our peripheral vision is not very precise. It's good for movement, but not a lot else. But when we want to read, you know, our eyes are moving across the text because we need to see those fine details. We need to take in those details with like a lot of acuity and precision. And that's foveal view. So um, and foveal view is just a really small percentage of what our eyes are capable of taking in. And like you said, it's basically the equivalent of two thumbs at arm's length. Everything else that we're seeing outside of that is coming in sort of fuzzy or blurry and not with the same sort of precision. And so that can be a challenge that when we're looking at the world around us, a lot of what we're taking in is actually coming in in a degraded way. It's ambiguous. It's not clear. It's fuzzy. We're not really sure, but we might still need to make a quick decision. Um, And so our brain fills in those gaps of understanding. Our brain is filling in what our eyes are not able to take in peripherally um, and, and sort of creating a clarity that isn't actually there in the first place. It's it's interesting because I don't know if you're keeping up to date with all things artificial intelligence, but uh, there are there are software programs now uh, that uh, deploy a a thing called generative fill, which does exactly what the brain does as far as the periphery of that field, that visual field you're talking about is concerned. It fills in that area, it fills in the detail, and and fleshes out the entire image. So it's funny how technology is again replicating what yeah. the, the human brain does naturally. Right. And there, you know, there's lots of examples of the mistakes, exactly what we're talking about, of how when there is this a generative fill or an autofill that it can make mistakes. And I think a great example of that is coming up um, with uh, like driverless cars. So, you know, the technology that's going into driverless cars is like there are algorithms that are being created with um, making sense of all of the input that the sensors and the cameras are providing. And in the same way that people have to make quick decisions based on what they're seeing, cars, driverless cars have to make quick decisions based on what they are seeing or what their sensors are taking in and what the algorithm thinks is presented in front of it. And that's where you get these examples of where, um, you know, driverless cars in its first sort of earlier days, a couple years ago, where it was not recognizing a man wearing a turban as a human. And so the car wasn't slowing when a man wearing a turban walked out into the middle of the street because the algorithm, the prototype of what looks like a human is not somebody who's wearing a turban. That that head accessory wasn't, you know, inputted into the algorithm. It didn't learn through its machine learning um, computations that people look like this. And the same goes for people with darker skin rather than lighter skin tone. So the algorithms are making mistakes as they have to make those quick decisions about what is it that I'm looking at? Is this a person or is it not a person? Um, the generative fill and the automated decisions that 
that make an algorithm decide yes or no, person or not person are making mistakes. And our brains do that too. You have examined our propensity, this innate propensity towards subjectivity by looking at it through the prism of health and fitness. And now Mm -hmm. it's particularly timely to talk about this because this will be airing in January whenever people are adopting new behaviours and new fitness regimes and uh, trying to commit to that new diet. And uh, I'm just interested to find out where subjectivity comes into this and what does your research show in relation to fitness? Sure. I think it can be kind of scary to listen to the stuff that we're talking about right now, that you know, driverless cars are not recognizing people as people or that our brains are making a mistake or like the world is not the way that it seems like it is to me. And that can be really scary. Um, and I don't mean for that to be the message here. I think, you know, with more understanding about how our eyes and our brain work, then we actually you know, get to leverage it as a superpower. That's the way that I think about it. Um, so if we understand that, like, hey, we all might not see the world in the same way, the next question is, well, what can we do to see it differently then? Is there a better way to see the world that actually might be helping me, uh, whereas the default might be that it that it isn't as helpful as it can be? And the answer is yes, there are things that you can do to see the world in a different way and actually create that superpower for yourself or le- leverage what's already available to you. Um, and so one of the things that we talk about and that we've investigated within the context of, of, of fitness is looking at attentional scope. The you can sort of liken the way that our eyes work to a spotlight, that when we point our eyes somewhere, there's like a spotlight shining on that spot and everything else is sort of, you know, left in the dark on the side, but we can move our spotlight and point it somewhere else. And like a spotlight, you can also change the diameter of it. You could have a very narrow spotlight of attention, or you could have a very wide spotlight of attention where the light is diffused over uh, a greater um, surface area. So that's how we can think about the way that our eyes and our visual attention works is like that spotlight. And I wondered if, um, if we could teach people to use, to direct that attentional spotlight, the narrowing or the closing down of that spotlight in a different way. And if it would have a different impact on, on their exercise habits, the way that we first started this was I had a chance to interview um, some world-class athletes, people that are some of the fastest runners in the world. They'd won gold medals uh, in the last Olympics for the 400 meter. There's some of the fastest guys. They were guys in this case coming out of Trinidad and Tobago, um, really amazing people. And I thought that one way that they're able to, to do what in some cases literally no other human can do uh, and run as fast as they do is because they have like like a superpower where they could see where they are, where they're going and know where the competition is. That like their eyes let them take in more than what an, uh, an otherwise normal person would be able to take in. So in talking with them, what I actually found out was that I was completely wrong. Um, some of the best discoveries I've ever made are happened because I was wrong about something. And what they said is, no, we're actually really focused. We just choose a target. We focus on that till we hit it. And then we set the new target and then and go again. And even those people that said, like, no, I don't really do that. I don't do this, like, narrowed focus of attention. They still said, but I should. And that's what I'm working towards. And as I dove into the biographies of other really amazing people, like, you know, the first woman to ever win um, the marathon in the Olympic Games, same thing. It's like I chose I chose the shorts of somebody up ahead of me, focused on that till I pass that person. Then I choose the, the next shorts that capture my attention. And they're not really giving much weight to what's coming in through the periphery. That all made sense to me. Like I understood what they were talking about. And so I thought, well, if 
you know, just by listening to a description of a different way of looking than, than the way that I thought would be helpful. I wonder if I can teach that to other people. The answer is yes. So as I'm describing it to you, you're probably imagining and envisioning what that experience is like to have a narrowed focus of attention. And when we taught participants, we've worked with thousands of people. When we teach them to do that, to narrow their attentional scope, like that spotlight down to more like a point rather than lighting up the whole room, to choose something to focus on until they get there and then to reset their target, what we found is that it led people to move 23% faster. We kept the distance the same. We did it. We tested this in, in a really controlled environment. The distance was always the same for everybody. The, the difficulty of the exercise remained the same. And yet when they narrowed their focus, rather than leaving it to be broad and expansive, they moved 23% faster and said that it hurt 17% less. So we made the exercise easier, even though they were performing at like a higher level of difficulty. Now, that was awesome. That was that was really incredible to us. But we wondered, okay, is this just a one-off? It just happens to be this set of 100 people. No, because when we taught this strategy and then let people, they gave us access to their fitness tracking app so we could see what do they do when, they're, when we're not standing there? What do they do when they're just left? They've been taught this strategy and then they're just left to, to the wild. What do they do? We found that people would go out for more walks more often. So it's not just about running. They would take 80% more steps on each walk. They would travel... Um, significantly farther in the same amount of time. And, and they would, they could repeat this, um, you know, for many days after, even when we're not there with our lab coats on, with a stopwatch at hand, taking notes about how they're doing. It seems like magic. Like, really? It's just that simple. People can do exercise better. It hurts less. I mean, this seems like amazing, right? And it's, it seemed like magic to me, but it's not. It's just a change in psychology. Because what happens when you narrow your focus of attention is that it produces a visual illusion of proximity. That thing that you're focused on, that target you're focused on now, looks closer to you than when you assume a, a wider, broader um, uh, visual scope. When you're taking in the periphery and giving that a lot of weight, then you're seeing all the milestones or, or distractors or obstacles you'd have to pass along the way. And so that target looks further away. But when you focus, it sort of draws it in closer to you. It contracts that the seam, the, it seemingly contracts the space separating you and it. That visual illusion of proximity has a whole cascade of motivational and psychological effects. Now it doesn't seem so far away. It doesn't look that far away. So it doesn't seem as hard to get there. It doesn't it seems like I have what it takes to be able to make it to that to that finish line, to that destination, to that target. And when you start changing your mindset in that way, that's what translates into improved performance. Now, when you believe in yourself and you think you can do it and it doesn't seem so hard, that's the psychological energy you need to walk faster and and have it defy your expectations on how much it's going to hurt. And so so um, that's the way that we've taken these ideas of like visual illusions. We don't all see the world in the same way and, and creating this superpower and applied it to a really concrete problem that we all experience, which is, you know, trying to trying to keep ourselves healthy and fit. Now, just to be clear, you're not talking necessarily about visualization because I know you're you're not a proponent necessarily of visualization in, in the traditional sense. Um, I am a proponent of visualization at, um, with, with, as a, as a component of a formula for success. 
So I'll come back to I'll come back to that point in a second. But just to say, no, in this study with exercise, we're talking about literally what are you pointing your eyes at and how much weight, how much um, space are you giving to make sense of what's coming in through the periphery? So I literally mean what you're seeing right now in your environment. But you can take those same ideas and apply it to a context that is more like visualization. So I know the strategy of narrowing our focus of attention applies to the physical space. We're talking about how much space separates me from this target that I focused on and that actual distance. But temporal distance is a thing too. The time, how much time is it going to take before I can meet this, you know, this, this goal that I set, you know, to, to accomplish this next level of promotion or to save up enough money that I feel safe for retirement. We're talking about time there. And what we have found also is that when people use more like visualization as a cognitive focusing technique, you can contract that sense of time. Now, the amount of time separating me from my desired future doesn't seem so far. It makes it a little bit easier in that case to make sacrifices today that'll be beneficial for that otherwise far off, seemingly so remote, distant future. The person that's going to reap the benefits of these sacrifices I have to make today, that future self now seems a little bit more psychologically close and relevant to me. We did... Um, we we tested this idea riffing off of Hal Hirschfield, a researcher at UCLA, at some of the research that he's done. So he's working with a group of, I don't know, 30 or so, actually 60 students who are um, on, all on the brink of graduating from college. They all had jobs to help pay, you know, their living expenses, tuition, room and board. And I asked them, are you saving for retirement? They're all like 20 to 22 years old. And they all said, no, <laughs> no I'm not saving for retirement. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. Actually, 55 out of 60 of them said no. So a couple of them were, but the vast majority were like, no, I'm I'm not. So, um, but that's problematic, right? All, all, all modeling tells us that if we even save just a small amount much sooner in our life, we'll be far better off in our retirement years than if we try to make up for it in later life because of the way compound interest works. So these students actually would be in a better spot even if they were just setting aside $20 now rather than $0 with each paycheck. We asked them, like, well, why? Why are you not? Do you not understand compound interest? I mean, probably the answer is like, well, most people don't really, but you get the idea. <laughs> um, they're like, no, that's not the problem. It's just that that seems so far away. It just seems like it's like, I don't even know who that like retired self is going to be. I don't know. I'm not saving. Like, that's a big sacrifice for a person. I don't even know who they are, even though it's them. So we just, that same idea of like, it seems so far away was also what was coming up a lot in our exercise studies. So we played with that idea of visualizing a narrowed focus of attention. I took a picture of them and I morphed that photograph with, with an old, with a photograph of an older and successful person like Maya Angelou or Betty White um, or Dan Rather. And, uh, and showed it to them. I showed them this movie of them aging and they, some of them lost lost their breath. They couldn't, they weren't breathing and like, breathe with me here. So it was like scary for them, but, um, but they got it now. It made that like, they were able to visualize what that future self would look like. And it made it more relevant and concrete and visual and tangible. And so then when we had a conversation about like, well, what's the future going to look like for you? And the conversation of retirement came up and I said, like, you know, what about saving for retirement? They're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to start saving now. 
you know, I didn't track their bank accounts to see if they did, but their whole attitude about it changed. Their beliefs about its importance, their understanding of why it would matter. And, um, you know, the appeal of doing a little bit right now um, was changed by that visualization. So I am a proponent of visualization. This is one context where we were using visualization as a tool. But going back to my original sort of asterisk on the answer to that, you know, a lot of times people stop the process of visualization within goal setting at visualization, thinking that if I put good thoughts out there, if I just think really positively, that's going to produce an energy that's going to help change my life and change the world. And that's the problem. You know, a lot of people do believe in that philosophy. It's actually a perspective that um, has been, you know, one of the New York Times bestselling books for a long time has that perspective about the power of positive energy. And I'm a, I'm a believer in the power of positive energy, too. And I really want more positivity in my life. But I also know that as a motivation researcher, you have to do more than just thinking about the positive future. You have to couple it with other aspects of goal setting. And that means concrete action planning foreshadowing obstacles you might experience before you experience them and coming up with the safety net, the backup plan, so you can pivot quickly and easily should you experience one of those obstacles. So visualization is important. And like knowing what are you working towards? What does that positive future look like is so important. You need a direction. And for a lot of people, that's the challenge. They often, you know, oftentimes it comes up that people feel like, I'm not really sure what my meaning is or what my purpose is or what I'm working towards. Why am I doing this? So having that answer is critical, but it's not the end of the game in terms of setting goals in a way that will increase the odds of success. I'm glad you said that. I spoke with a professor only the other day who was talking about the exact same thing, saying that uh, you had to put concrete energy and action into whatever ambitions you had and whatever you were visualizing. And she, so she said the exact same thing as you said. So, uh, and I know the exact book that you're talking about as well, which shall remain nameless. Um, yeah. <laughs> talking of books, actually, in your own book, Clearer, Closer and Better, uh, you talk about Alvaro uh, Pascual Leon. He's a Harvard Medical School neurologist. Uh, he's done lots of uh, interesting studies involving blindfolds and Braille and fMRI studies. Can you talk to us briefly about this? Oh, it's such fascinating work. Yeah, I love this. You know, I love it because it just it concretely um, exemplifies the idea that we're always learning. We're always changing. Our brain is always capable of new things. The idea of this is called plasticity, that our brain is capable of changing. Um, it's sort of uh, evolving itself, even within our own with even within our own lifetime. So as you foreshadowed, this neuroscientist will has taken um, participants who are willing and interested in doing this work, brings them into the hospital. So it's a controlled setting and it can keep them safe and study what's happening for them. And they are people that have always had power of sight. Uh, as a as a sense, and he'll put blindfolds on them. Inside the blindfolds are are photo sensitive paper, so that if light were to get inside, the paper would react, and we would know that there was light coming into people's eyes, that they could see something in this time. But the papers never reacted, so we know that all of these study participants had all access to visual experience cut off for a week. Now, every day they would uh, go into an fMRI machine, which is a you know a big like tube magnet that um, is tracking changes in blood flow in your brain. And, and so it can see, well, what parts of the brain are really active as you're doing something in this magnet tube in the fMRI machine or as you're thinking something. 
Um, and so he's looking to see what's happening in the visual cortex. Now that's, you know, it's interesting because they're wearing blindfolds. They don't take their blindfolds off to go into that tube. They don't take their blindfolds off to, to, to bathe or to eat. Um, that's not happening. They're not seeing anything for this whole week. And so you would think, well, like the visual cortex should be like turned off. <laughs> it's taken a nap for this week. Uh, and at first it looks like that when you take away people's power of sight, uh, the visual cortex is really not that active at the beginning of the week. But besides like having to figure out how to navigate living in this hospital context while blindfolded for a week, chaperoned, of course, and helped and assisted. He's also having them learn Braille. None of these people knew Braille before, and they're certainly not able to read Shakespeare by the end of their week, but they can discriminate with their fingertips, little bumps that are telling us, is this an A or is it a letter R, for instance? And so they get good at being able to distinguish letters in Braille. And what he finds then is that at the, by the end of the week, when they're in that fMRI tube again, their blindfold has, hasn't been taken off yet. At the beginning of the week, that visual cortex was kind of taking a nap. Not a lot of activity activity was happening as they were doing Braille in the fMRI machine. But by the end of the week, when they were touching the Braille letters, their visual cortex was responding to that. Again, their eyes are seeing nothing, but their fingertips are almost doing the work of what their eyes would have been doing otherwise. These people used to read with their eyes before this week, but now they're reading with their fingers and it's their visual cortex that's responding to the sensation on their fingertips. That's the idea of plasticity is that even within the span of one week, their their visual cortex rewired itself so that it now was responding to the sensation of touch rather than visual experience. And these were all grown adults. You know, you might think if you have this perspective that by the time we're grown ups, we are who we are. We've got the traits and qualities and our brain works the way that it's going to it's going to. But no, this is the great example of how that's just not the case. Our brains are always learning and changing. I might be putting you on the spot here, but I'm just curious as to whether you know about the brains of people who were born without sight. What is happening in their visual cortex? Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same idea. So this was meant to be an experimental version of what happens in that natural context of what happens when we take away people's power of sight. And what we find um, and what is known is not that that part of the brain atrophies for people who are born um, without sight, who have never been able to see. It's not like that part of their brain doesn't develop. It's that it is taken over by other senses. So they have a heightened ability to uh, experience sensations with fingers or with the sense of smell or taste. And some of those other sensations are being um, processed um, in the visual cortex in what would have been areas that would have been specialized for visual processing and otherwise sighted people. So it re it has rewired itself and remapped itself even from birth for those individuals. Earlier, we were talking about uh, those supreme athletes uh, that you were studying and uh, their philosophy of eyes on the prize and that helped to motivate them. What can we learn from them and apply to ourselves at the beginning of the new year, for example, uh, so as that we can hold on to those New Year's resolutions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, just understanding, like, there's so much that we can say about New Year's resolutions, understanding that most people give up by Valentine's Day, six weeks in. So just knowing that that's going to be one of our obstacles that we experience. Uh, a lot of the problems are that 
We set our sights, our expectations for progress at a rate that's not sustainable or that's too high. New year, new you, we set these really lofty goals. And then a couple of weeks in when we've been doing the hard work and making the sacrifices, carving out the time, um, and we don't see a rate of progress that seems commensurate with the effort that we put in, that's the reason why most people give up. So it's about calibrating our expectations. It's about um, understanding that we're probably going to have to be in it for the long haul when we set these big goals. And that can be challenging of how do you stay motivated for something that might take four or five, six months to accomplish um, and using that power of like the visualization component of the narrowed focus idea to try to contract that space. You know, in, in, in January, summer's not that far off. If you can imagine yourself, put yourself into that future space, it might help, uh, bring a sense of urgency that can, um, be, be instrumental in overcoming the temptations or challenges of today to stick with that goal that's going to require us, um, to do what might otherwise seem really hard in a, in a really long goal. And then following on from that, I know one of the academics in your department, Gabrielle Ottingen, has examined the idea of thinking about obstacles that will stand in the way of our goal attainment. So surely that will help too. Absolutely, 100%. If we come up with that safety net in advance, should we experience an obstacle that might otherwise leave us to throw in the towel, we can more easily pivot to that plan B. Um, You know, it's just like... That's why they tell you on airplanes, put your own safety mask on first, your own oxygen mask on first before assisting others, is that you already need to know that. You need to know that so that if the plane's going down, metaphorically, you know exactly what you're going to do in this time of crisis. That's not the time to be figuring out what's your what's your emergency exit strategy. Okay, there you go. Well, no excuses then not to stick with that New Year's <laughs> resolution. Some great advice there. Let me give the name of the book again. It's called The Clearer, Closer, Better. Dr. Emily Bacchettis, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Habit Podcast. If you're getting value from this series, please like, subscribe and share with friends, family, work colleagues alike. Also, a reminder, we are now on YouTube and Instagram if you want to sit down and watch the videos of these episodes. Until next time. Stay happy.